The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. If you haven't connected with me on social media or by sending me an email, go to my host page, Good Grief, at Voice America to find links to every way you can be in touch with me. Today, I'm welcoming Dr. Jordan Grummet. Jordan was born in Evanston, Illinois in 1973. His interest in becoming a doctor formed when his father, an oncologist, died in the early 80s. He graduated from the University of Michigan and moved to Chicago and received his medical degree from Northwestern University. After relocating to St. Louis for residency, he returned to Evanston and now practices internal medicine in Northbrook, Illinois. He's the acting medical director of two nursing facilities and is an associate medical director of hospice and palliative care. Jordan is married and has two children. Jordan's chapbook of poetry, Primary Care, was released by the Lives You Touch publications in winter 2012. Its short stories have appeared in Pulse, Voices from the Heart of Medicine, and Medical Economics. He's also a frequent contributor to the popular physician website, Kevin MD. And I know that he's publishing a new book based on his blogs called uh, I Am Your Doctor and This Is My Humble Opinion this year. Jordan updates his blog regularly at www.jordan-inmyhumbleopinion.blogspot.com and can be followed on Twitter at Jordan Grummet. Welcome to the show, Jordan. Thanks. It's good to be here. Uh, I'm really happy to be here. I I really appreciated being able to uh, get some exposure to all of this illness, dying and death from a physician's point of view because I know it from the patient point of view primarily and the and the family point of view. Um, but most of the physicians that I have encountered, not all, but most don't talk from that, that personal point of view. So thank you so very much for doing that. Yeah, no problem. You know, I realized fairly early that, that people didn't really know how things felt from the other side of the stethoscope. So uh, I felt like it was time we started that conversation of how things felt from the other side. Yeah, there, t- there tends to be maybe a little less now than when I was encountering the medical system most intensely when my wife was ill, um, there tends to be kind of a veil. And uh, at least her doctors were not, I, rem- I remember the times they were very personal because they were infrequent. 
um, for instance, her oncologist uh, at the very end of our time together uh, quit seeing patients and started doing research only. And he said, we asked him why, and he said, I can't take it anymore. Uh, and it still stays on my mind because it was infrequent that we would hear that kind of personal comment. Yeah, I, I think um, one of the most difficult things um, for physicians to learn over the years is when to depersonalize um, and when to step back and create walls and then when to break those walls down. Um, and I think it's actually one of the biggest hazards we face is that we build these uh, very, very strong walls, and then we have trouble uh, breaking them down. Uh, and that leaves us fairly empty inside. So I think it's something that, that physicians struggle with quite a bit. And I think our patients feel it. Maybe we don't always put words to it, um, but they know that struggle is there. Mm-hmm. And and tell me a little bit, I, as a mental health professional, I can imagine the very compelling need to let the barriers down, you know, to actually be able to feel what's happening and all of that. But tell me some of the reasons that you find that the, the those barriers need to be put up. Well, you know, I think as, as physicians and I think also nurses and social workers and pretty much everyone in healthcare, you know, we see some incredibly difficult things. We see people um, when they're suffering at the most, and sometimes we have to make split-second decisions that affect lives. Um, And so I think there are times when you have to let go of the personal uh, and make very rational, um, difficult decisions. And I think at those times specifically, sometimes you have to be able to not look at this as a person, but as a set of symptoms or numbers or even the whole picture, but without looking at someone so personally. Um, And I think that's a great gift in times of need. Um, You know, what I always say is, you know, most people don't care when they're in for emergency surgery whether their surgeon holds their hand or whether they have a good bedside manner. They care, can they get in in there and do what needs to be done? And there are times when that's exactly what we need to do. Um, And I think you need to depersonalize sometimes to do that a little bit. You're reminding me, and I actually thought of this when I was reading your book, too. I heard uh, Dan Siegel speak uh, years ago. I don't know if you know who he is, but he's done a lot of work on mindfulness and and medicine, basically. And um, he was talking about being in medical school and being on a pediatrics rotation and having to make the kinds of decisions you're talking about. And did fine with it, got through it, all that. And then when his first child was born, he started just having a terrible time every time his child cried. And he realized that he had some traumatic uh, reactions left over, kind of. He finally made the connection to that time in medical school. And that was that always stood out to me, that idea that you could kind of get traumatized by having to put aside your own feelings to care for people effectively. Yeah, I think, believe it or not, um, having children uh, can really bring out some of those feelings. I know for me it did. Um, I wrote a piece um, called The Day Medicine Broke Me, or basically I wrote the piece called The Day Medicine Broke My Chief, and I talk about my chief resident um, during my gynecology obstetrics rotation and something that we both encountered um, that really, in a sense, brought us down to our knees. It was just a very horrible, difficult thing we encountered. Um, and I remember that causing a certain um, certain amount of coldness in my own heart, um, which in some ways didn't really open back up until I had my own children and, and 
started to learn how to feel again. So I, I think that's a common feeling in physicians. And I think, you know, the birth of a child or, or something as personal as that can sometimes bring out a lot of that stuff that we've been holding inside. And again, when we talk about building very strong, fortified walls, um, that's the type of event that sometimes breaks those walls. Which is, of course, from my view, viewpoint, very common about parenting in general. You know, when you have children and you love those children, it sort of reconnects you with certain parts of you that may have been a little quiet. But this sounds so much more... Um, um, you know, intense maybe, uh, but very big for different reasons. And, w- you know, I'm, I'm also aware that you, you lost your father, who was also a doctor, very, very young. Um, how do, that's sort of three things to intersect there in terms of then being a parent. Um, did, did they converge or were they kind of separate realms for you? You know, I think... You know, that's a big question. Um, So the act of becoming a doctor, I think, for me, was very tied into my father dying. So I I like to say we we tell ourselves uh, the stories about our lives that make it bearable, or better yet, magical, mystical. Mm. You know, so I tell myself the story about my life that my father died right when I was at the age when I was very impressionable and wanted to be just like him. If he had lived longer, maybe him and I would have fought and I would have decided to do something else with my life. But because he died at that important point, I took it upon myself to become a physician, to help people, to maybe finish the work that he was never able to do. So I think that for me, specifically the death of my father, had a big role in me becoming a physician. I think the the birth of of my first child, Cameron, really broke down some of those walls that I had built during medical school and residency um, with all the kind of pain and sadness that I had seen and I had done so much to protect myself. You know, the act of, of having children is, is being vulnerable, right? I mean, it's yeah. one of the most vulnerable things at we its, do. At its best, and, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I think even at its worst. I mean, mm. that vulnerability, allowing myself to be vulnerable, having children, allowing, you know, to, to wear your heart outside of your body, so to speak, um, really brought back all those other feelings of vulnerability, which I had done so so much to hide and, and to try to conquer. Um, so I think they all intersect, um, sometimes in different ways, but it all comes together, obviously, as most lives do. And also as most griefs do, it's very, very hard to actually to pull those things apart. So we're... we're um musing about something that can't be entirely answered, I'm aware of, too, that uh, we are many things and they all come together in quite surprising ways sometimes. I'd like to give people a sense of your writing, and um, it's a little bit of a jump or maybe not. I wonder if you could share the, the section that you call Death is Often Quiet. That really, really struck me because it's actually my experience of death, that there's a quietness to it uh, that is remarkable, not to me anymore, but was quite remarkable to me the first time I experienced it. Yeah, this piece um, obviously is is very near to my heart. I originally, when I started writing it, I, I was thinking about explaining to people 
what I go through when I talk to people and help try to lead them through this very difficult thing, uh, the death of a loved one. Um, and the other side, I realize that often the loved one dies and often, hopefully, if we're lucky, is quite comfortable, but yet it's the family that suffers in the end. And I saw a very big parallel in my own life, uh, how my father had died when I was young, and maybe some of what I do now is a product of some of that suffering. So I think it really did pull things full circle. So I'll, I'll read the piece. It's called Death is Often Quiet. This is one of the most difficult things for lay people to understand. Usually there is a moment to collect my thoughts as the phone rings. I speak slowly and deliberately. Something has changed. They are carefully chosen words to cushion the unavoidable plunge into darkness. I know. I know. It happens dozen times, dozens of times a year. Death follows me home after a hard day of work. <clears throat> It buzzes against my skin and awakens me from a deep sleep. It yanks me out of exam rooms and interrupts family dinners. Such irony for a boy excused from class in second grade to be accompanied home by a family friend. My, puppet, my mother pulled me in close and whispered that my father was gone, even as relatives sat in the living room glumly. But now I have become my mother and guide families to this awful blackness. I wonder how it affects me. While others struggle with shadows, I see quite clearly. My eyes have adapted so expertly that often I feign empathy as friends relate the tragedies of the day. I didn't know my career would lead here. I didn't know that I would be good at it. I pray, my dear reader, never to meet you in this lonely place roaming beside me. But if I do, I might offer a bit of wisdom. Death is often quiet. Pain should be the exception, not the rule. And suffering, it turns out, is mostly left for those who remain. That that I think is is something I don't know if it's possible to really um, to really believe that unless you've experienced it. But I I very much resonate with what you're saying there. Uh, and even uh, my mother died recently. My my wife in 1995, but my mother just in the fall. And there's a sort of for me anyway grace period after the death before the pain really uh, really impacts the pain you're talking about. Um, that, is, that is very quiet internally for me, and, at least. Yeah, you know, I found that we all grieve very differently. Um, and I think there's no right or wrong. But it's, I think people, you know, as a physician... I get to the point where I feel like the person who's dying, I can manage their symptoms, I can manage their physical pain, I can make sure they're comfortable. But what my big fear always is, is those loved ones, those family members, a lot of times I think helping them um, before, during, and after is one of the hardest things. And, and it's them who I worry about, actually, and their suffering. And I, I think that does also speak to it being our culture being a relatively hard culture to grieve in at times. Uh, grief is uh, not for me because I, I live in this subject, but generally a little bit um, unwelcomed, uninvited. The, the actual experience of grief and letting yourself have those feelings, it can put people in a lot of crisis. So I think that's a part of it too. Yeah, I, I think that... You know, people don't want to talk about death. Uh, they don't want to think about it. Uh, and they certainly don't want to consider what the grieving process might be like. 
Um, so I think it hits us all very, very much so because, you know, it's completely out of most of our realms. Again, people who work in this field understand because they're dealing with it day in and day out, but your average person does everything they can to push it back to the farthest part of their mind until they're forced to deal with such things. And then it's a, that it, it is quite a huge and profound um, load having if you've if you've never thought of it <laughs> or never really considered um, that part of living but I'm also yeah. aware that you know you're talking about numerous dozens maybe times a year that you and your colleagues are um, especially in palliative care and end-of-life care encountering death and I wonder whether you think the profession is getting any wiser about kind of grief fatigue and just what it's like to encounter so many um, deaths and so many families. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think in some ways, yes. In other ways, no. If you look at the Internet, there's now an explosion on social media of doctors starting to tell their stories. So I think we're getting a little bit better at emoting and talking about those things that are going on, but that's still a small segment of the physician population. So by far and large, where, you know, there's more of us talking about it, uh, and there's certainly more of an acceptance about it, it's still not a common part of doctor's everyday lexicon. It's not something we're discussing in physician lounges. Um, there's more support than there used to be, uh, but I think we're we're a far away from it. And I think there are a lot of miserable doctors out there. I'm happy mm-hmm. at moments, but also miserable because uh, there's so much sadness going on, and, and they haven't done anything to really address some of it. Um, I have a good friend from medical school who actually read my book, and um, you know, his first comment was, you know, when I first started reading it, I kind of started having a nervous breakdown because it brought mm-hmm. down so many, brought back so many things that I hadn't thought about in such a long time, but that were very real and very painful to me uh, that I'd never dealt with. Um, So I think there's a lot of that going on. There's a lot of submerging um, our pain to kind of move on with our daily life. Um, But that pain usually needs some type of outlet, as most pain does. So it tends to come back when we're not expecting it. And I wonder if that doesn't lead, you know, the 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 idea of kind of keeping it at bay wouldn't lead to some pressure from colleagues not to talk about it. Maybe not so much in, I find that people who work in palliative care and, and hospice and those fields are a little more comfortable. But I wonder, is there some, is there some tension about... Um, the doctors who are speaking more freely? You know, I don't know if there's tension per se, but, you know, physicians especially, you know, we're really good at living in silos, right? So you get out and you practice as an attending physician, depending on on what uh, format your practice is in. And a lot of times you're kind of like out on your own. Uh, You're on Mm. your own continent dealing with your patients, calling in for help as you need it. Uh, but day to day, there's no one sitting beside you answering those phone calls in the middle of the night. Um, there's no one in the exam room beside you helping make those tough decisions. There's always people you can call. But I think, it, uh, you know, at our base, most of us are loners. 
Mm. Um, and so we talk about living in silos, and I think physicians have lived in silos for a long time. So we're not natural natural at sharing these type of things. Um, again, there are places, there are schools, there are academic centers where, where people do have these meetings, and they talk about their feelings, and they read poetry, and there's more of that than there used to be. But I think for your average everyday physician, it's not a matter of, I'm going to stay away from you because you're talking about these kind of things. I think it's just not a comfortable subject, so people stay away from it. Yeah. It's time for our first break, and we'll we'll pick up the same, uh, we'll pick up on that when we come back. Listeners, just take the few moments to go to my host page and connect with me, website, social media, all the rest, and you can find Jordan Grummet, MD, at www.jordan-inmyhumbleopinion.blogspot.com com back in a few minutes your life your health your network you're listening to voice america health and wellness if you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm here talking with Jordan Grummet, a physician whose blog and books illuminate his experiences as a doctor through a human lens. And um, you said something during the break that um, really impacted me. You said, I think being a physician is a heartbreaking occupation, a heartbreaking calling. Um, I can I can imagine that's tr- true. And also, um, when it when you really make a difference, it, it must also be sort of heart-opening to a, a degree, perhaps. With, there's yeah. a question mark at the end of that sentence. You know, I, I think it's both. Um, being a physician is incredibly rewarding because people open their lives to you. And uh, there's great wisdom, happiness, joy, and connection 
when you get to be part of people's lives. But the balanced side of that is you also see some of the most wretched, horrible, scary things. And so I think it's a little matter of both. What what most people don't also understand is that um, most conscientious physicians carry every decision they make with them. Um, and if you're involved in any field in which people get sick, um, you watch people die, and you watch people die sometimes after you make very important decisions. Um, and that's, that's just difficult. Um, we all carry that with us. And in most people's normal lives, they walk through day to day, and they make various decisions, and those decisions have consequences. But usually those consequences may be not pleasant, um, but don't scar them for the rest of their lives. And I think physicians sometimes make decisions and they scar us and we carry those scars with us and, and they don't go away. Um, there's a prominent neurosurgeon out of, uh, out of the UK who just wrote a book about um, being a neurosurgeon and a lot of it is about the decisions he made and uh, the impact those have had on him. And I, I think we all carry that with us. And also... Uh, from the outset, it seems to me that the state of healthcare um, reinforces that in the sense that there's sort of a um, an idea that perfection's possible, that physicians shouldn't be human, and if they make a, a human error of some sort, or even don't make an error but someone thinks it was, you'll get sued and you'll get uh, raked over the coals and... Um, it feels to me like that would contribute to a sense that really mistakes are not um, allowable. Yeah, I, I definitely think it does, and it's certainly something that enters the physician mind. One of the biggest surprises to me as I went through medical school residency and then started practicing is the grand majority of what we do are shades of gray. Um, so we used to think, or I grew up thinking that it was black and white. A patient came in sick, they had problem A, you gave them treatment B, and they got better. Um, the reality is medicine is much more nuanced, uh, much more difficult, and often, um, much more often than I ever had thought, the answers aren't quite clear. Um, and, and that's... <laughs> that's something that's very difficult to get used to if, if you didn't know. Absolutely. And of course, that's where I live with mental health. There's never a direct way forward. There's, it's always got nuance and gray area. But it does seem to me that, um, say, my, my parents' generation, uh, they did see doctors as people to bring their bodies to and kind of uh, leave there, get fixed and go home. You know, um, hopefully our perspective as people using medica- medical care services is getting a little more nuanced over time, too. The, um, but I know that with my, pac- my clients with cancer, the consequences are so big that it's hard to maintain that outlook. Yeah, and, and I, I think that's just... For all of us, uh, the minute someone actually gets sick and has to deal with the hospital system and is in and out of doctor o- doctor's offices, they start realizing that the answers aren't always perfectly clear. And that can be very disconcerting. It can be very difficult. It adds on to all the other stress that they already have. For sure. And then one thing that really stood out in your book as well is just 
how very difficult it is to deal with the system of medical care at the moment. My um, my niece just graduated from medical school and and also with a master's in public policy, and she was doing some research on covered California, which is our brand of the of the change in healthcare that's going Obamacare, for lack of a another word. And uh, we were talking about how you know many many clients I have have had to actually leave oncologists and healthcare providers they've had for decades sometimes. Uh, because the particular plan they got didn't have that person on it. So there's that whole layer, too. I'm sure you can tell me a lot about the other side of that, where you can't get authorization or you're paid very badly, you know, just that whole aspect of medical care at the moment, too, which must add a layer of difficulty for uh, medical providers. Yeah, I I think that uh, the law of unintended consequences is a law that we still don't quite understand. Um, Whenever you mess with a big, large, unwieldy system, um, pressure in one direction is going to cause, you know, changes in pressure in other directions. Sure. We manipulate small areas of one part of the law, and we find the consequences in a way we completely didn't expect or understand. Um, and I think we see that a lot with healthcare policy. Um, you, one one must walk into making healthcare policy very, very carefully, <laughs> um, because the consequences are huge, and often we just don't know the effect of what we're doing. Absolutely, and and I do want to say that. The the other consequence has been that a lot of people I work with are being very much helped by just, you know, very um, uh, significant reduction in costs and even ability to get insurance for some people who couldn't because they had pre-existing conditions. So it's not a one-way thing that's going on, but I imagine trying to maneuver with that, uh, those changes must be stressful. Yeah, I think physicians are, we, no, no one likes change, right? So, um, <laughs> Not in when, general, yeah, <laughs> unless, you've, n- unless you've realized sometimes it's good change, <laughs> but uh, we're, we're talking I, about the hard ones. Yeah, I, I don't think yet we know the significance of all these changes. Um, I know from the physician side, physicians are getting tired. Uh, they're feeling overworked. Um, they're feeling like a lot of the regulations and the paperwork is exploding. Um, I know physicians are leaving at a rapid pace, more rapid than they have in the past. I know that they're moving towards non-clinical careers. I know that they're joining medical groups and seeing far less patients than they used to. Um, but the newer generation of physicians coming out of medical school now have a whole different set of expectations. Um, so they may adapt better uh, to the brave new world of medicine than kind of the older docs who have been out there doing it for longer. You mean because they've they've come into the system at this point and it's just what they've been trained to? or Correct. We, I think they uh-huh. never kind of knew the old system. And you know, physicians coming out nowadays are also very, very different than physicians coming out 10 or 20 years ago. So physicians coming out nowadays really do expect to have a good work-life balance. Um, they expect to co-parent. They expect to be available on weekends. They expect to do less call. Um, and they're willing to accept, uh, I think, lesser pay for that. 
um, and they're willing more to work in teams. These are all things that kind of the older generation of physicians didn't do. Um, certainly that was not part of my training. You know, I, I was still part of, of the group that was more rugged individualists. Um, you know, we take our own phone calls, even if it's three in the morning, because we know the patient and it's our responsibility. Um, that type of attitude is, is changing. That might be a good moment for you to read the section uh, of your book called Motion, because um, I think that kind of speaks to the fatigue of, of being so available it, to, a, to a degree. Yeah, sure. All right, so the name of this piece is called Motion. The first thing I become cognizant of is motion, the beating of the heart, the contraction of the muscles as I place the phone back onto the base or into my pocket, the shallow breath that willow past the lips. Only then do I contemplate notifying the family and giving my condolences. Death has followed me from childhood, not as a specter lurking in the darkened corners, but more like a willing companion in a yet undisclosed game of strategy. And as far as professions go, there is a false intimacy in doing what I do. To experience the aftertaste of mortality on such a regular basis without partaking of the bitter nectar is like placing the little white cancer stick to one's lips and yet never to inhale. We are disconnected, those I tend to and I. It is never so apparent than in those seconds after the last breath is taken. There is an undeniable stillness in death. Anyone who has been present in the moment immediately can tell the difference. There is a transition from the living, breathing, and circulating to inanimate object. No matter how much we slow our bodies, the blood still pumps, oxygen exchanges, and diaphragms pull down. We look to the ephemeral, talking of of such things as spirit and soul. I am at a loss in such conversations, because as the warmth returns, I take a deep breath and make the phone call. I stumble through the words I have mumbled so many times. I am so sorry for your loss. It was an honor and privilege to take care of your loved one. If there's anything I can do to make this better. My oft-repeated words carry a certain hollowness. In a vast ocean of uncertainty, they are merely tiny flecks of wood bobbing up and down. They are utterances, vocalizations, vibrations that remind both speaker and listener that we are not yet standing upon the abyss. They are motion. That, that uh, I, I take it you usually, unless the family is there, you usually call and inform the family uh, when a person has died. Is that true? Or uh, I often? do. Yeah. So because of, I, I, always, I take care of a lot of nursing home patients as well as I do a lot of hospice and palliative care. Um, so I make a lot of phone calls telling people that their loved one is started the dying process. Or, unfortunately, sometimes they die and no one's around, and I make a lot of phone calls telling them that that someone has died. So this is a very frequent conversation in my practice. In fact, I sometimes make a joke that, you know, my kids have heard more conversations about death by their ages of 7 and 10 than, than anyone should for their whole life, because that's a huge part of what I do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I would, this is an imagining on on my part. But I would imagine that um, there would be families where you would, for some reason, and maybe you know something about the reasons, particularly identify, and and other families where it's more like this piece of writing, I do this all the time kind of feeling. Is that the case? Uh, I'm sorry, can you repeat the question? Uh, I, I was imagining that there might be times where, for whatever reason, 
either of, of history or whatever other reason, you might particularly identify with a family that's losing somebody. Uh, oh, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think I identify with these families a lot. I mean, a lot of times these are patients of mine that I know fairly well, too. So in some ways I'm losing a patient, someone I cared for, someone who I've now become part of their story, and, and they might have even become part of mine. So, um, you know, we, we're all in this, in this human race together, uh, and we all, you know, it's a very few people who live their whole life and don't, don't experience the death of a loved one. Um, I think we're all tied together by this grieving process. Of course, I certainly do agree with that point of view, but um, not, not everyone out there lives with that awareness. I actually find that a very almost comforting awareness. We're all in this together. Uh, um, but but I'm finding not I've always found not everybody comes at it from that point of view. So you're dealing with families who may have never had that thought or experience. And and one of the disconnects about being a physician who deals with these things is for better or for worse, this is my everyday life. Um, these are conversations I'm having on a weekly basis. Um, but for them, it's the most difficult, scary thing that happens very infrequently. Um, so one of the things I struggle with is bridging that gap um, so that we can interact on the same level and be together in the moment, um, even though for me this is a very commonplace conversation. And so... How do you do that? How do you bridge that gap? I mean, one way is you make contact and and inform them yourself, but are there other ways that you bridge that gap that you're aware of? Well, you know, what I do is I, I try to allow myself to feel. Um, I try to allow myself to be sad, and I think that's a difficult thing for a physician to do, but what I've found is it's much better than the alternative, which is to shut yourself down and speak the words but not feel the thoughts. Um, so sometimes when I'm feeling sad and I'm talking to a family, I'm thinking about my own sadness or the loss of my father or, or the loss of a patient who I feel particularly fond about. So, so I try to feel, I try to be present in the moment and I, I try to be there. Um, not, not just for them, but for me too, because otherwise Mm. it's fairly unbearable to do this day in, day out. And I imagine, um, you know, I, I interview many, many people who write as a way to deal with those feelings. It seems as if you do that as well. Um, your, your writing certainly does express your feelings about what you deal with every day. Um, is, do you find you write to uh, illuminate or do you write because you need to for yourself or a combination Oh, I definitely write because I have to, um, because I feel things deeply enough, and when something comes into my mind that I want to write, it literally is like an itch that I can't scratch until I put it down on paper. So I have something deep down inside that tells me you must write about these things, um, so it comes out no matter what. Now, the side effect of that, so to speak, is that it does help me deal with these things. Um, quite a bit. Uh, I think the more I write about my circumstances, the more, again, I'm able to be in the moment and feel them and deal with them as opposed to shut down um, and protecting myself. Because I think ultimately the enemy is trying to protect yourself too much from the reality of life going around you. We do a horrible job at it. We try to protect ourselves, but it eats us up from the inside. We just don't 
don't notice it. Um, so I, I figure we might as well get it out there and deal with it. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's really not so bad, right? <laughs> Just, well, to me, uh, no. Obviously, that's uh, that's my gear. Having the feelings is is not so bad once you let it happen. <laughs> yeah. I, I think sadness is, is just a part of life. Um, and I think doing what I do and dealing with illness and dealing with life and death is, is going to be sad. And I think to try to deny that sadness um, just kind of will lead you to be a miserable person. So instead, <laughs> I, you know, I wouldn't say I embrace the sadness anymore, except what it is. And, and that doesn't scare me. Um, it doesn't scare me the idea that I'll get upset. It doesn't scare me the idea that maybe I'll cry with or around a patient. Yes. Um, those things are very natural and they're real. Um, and so I'd rather focus my emotional energy on what's happening than worries about how it looks or worries about how I should be. Um, yes. Sometimes you just have to be who you are. It's a great way to go into our second break. Listeners, go out there and find us, especially Jordan Grummet at www.jordan-inmyhumbleopinion.blogspot.com. Back after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. What causes us to be sick? We're not talking about the actual illness or the scientific cause of illnesses. We're talking about your body and health. Listen for the healing whisper of Return to Peace. Each week, host Dr. Marianne Chase shows you how to listen to your heart to identify poor health, stress, and disease. You'll learn how to heal energetically and spiritually as well as physically. It's time to depend less on the drugs and more on the heart. The Healing Whisper airs live every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. 
Welcome back. I've been talking with Dr. Jordan Grummet, who writes about the human experience of being a physician in his blog posts, his poetry, and soon-to-be-released book, I Am Your Doctor, and This Is My Humble Opinion. Jordan, your, your family was very present for me while I was reading the book. It especially uh, stood out when you were talking about your your kids and your wife and, and trying to integrate the work you do with with having family. Maybe that stood out especially for me given that my office is in back of my house and when I was raising my kids, I was coming in and out of work into being with them. So it, I kind of identified to a certain extent, although obviously very different experiences. But um, I, I wondered if you could just talk a little more on the air to the listeners about the, the way that being a parent, having a family intersects with being a doctor and having such a kind of profound um, call on your energy and time and emotion. Uh, you know, I, I think, you know, having children and, and being married, uh, definitely you have to be particularly patient if your spouse or parent is a physician because I think it can be a, a grueling vocation. Um, so my family is very used to the fact that I'm getting 10 or 15 phone calls a day, sometimes in the middle of the afternoon or night or sometimes at 3 in the morning. They're used to being interrupted as they talk. They're used to me talking about things like death on a regular basis on the phone. They're used to me occasionally having to disappear in the middle of the day or the night um, when we're in the middle of doing something else. Um, And I think it's required a great deal of patience on their side. On the other hand, um, I've also set up my practice in such a way that I'm very present in my kids' lives. I really try to be there all weekend. I'm home for every dinner. It's a rare dinner that we miss together. Um, I try to go to all their violin concerts and tennis practices, and, and I try to be very present in their lives. Part of that trade-off is they know that I may be stepping out to take a phone call at any given time, regardless of what it is. Um, for instance, tonight we have a violin concert, and it's very likely I will find a seat that is somewhere right by the exit so that uh-huh. I can make a fast departure when my phone rings, because undoubtedly it will. Mm. And then there's the impact of never being entirely off on you. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm always recommending to myself and others having unavailable times, but that's very hard to do in the kind of work that you have. Yeah, I've also structured, so some of that is also my fault, is I've structured my practice that I actually am a solo practitioner. Um, I don't have any partners. Um, And so there has not been a day in the last five years that I haven't at least taken a few phone calls for work. Um, That's, again, on purpose because it was the kind of practice I wanted to start. Um, And it can be fatiguing. Uh, There's no question about it, but it's almost such a part of my normal life now. Uh, that it's something I'm fairly used to. Mm. I think it would be a good moment if you wouldn't mind sharing the D word, that section of of the book. I I was thinking a lot about the, yes, obvious disadvantage of being available like that and the kids hearing conversations about death, but I know for my own kids there's also some advantage in the sense that they have come to terms with some things that their contemporaries have not that actually uh, makes them more lively in their lives. Uh, you know, kind of they they get that it's precious. And um, 
the natural way in which this this section uh, talks about how you talk with your kids about issues of death um, really touched me. So would you share that? Sure. The name of this piece is called The D Word, and actually this is a very real series of conversations I had with my daughter who who questions everything um, and who listens very closely. So after listening to me for a while and being that certain age, uh, she had some questions. So the name of this piece is called The D Word. My daughter has begun to use the D word. When I die, people will walk on me. Even at the age of four, she knows that the dead are buried in the ground. More questions follow rapidly. She thinks that if a grandparent doesn't show up to pick up her classmate from school one day, he must have died. The same if someone goes on vacation for a week. Her statements are crude and shockingly honest. Unfettered by the complexities of the adult mind, she is free to explore unencumbered. There is no guilt or embarrassment in her voice. Our conversations lack the fear and angst that so often cloud this kind of discussion amongst grown-ups. She is curious. Was I dead before you had me? In some ways, it's likely that my daughter's fascination with death will not evolve as she grows older. She will lose the innocence as she forgets the mechanics and begins to contemplate deeper meaning. She might wonder, what happens to our soul? The pang of love that shatters our hearts, does it just disappear? And I will tell her that I don't know. I have helplessly watched life slip away countless times, but I am no closer to the answer. I have battled death as the enemy and also humbly welcomed her mercy. I have traveled her path and attempted to veer away at every turn. I no longer see friend or foe. She's more a quiet mistress who waits patiently in the wings. Like my daughter, we are all just children. Bobbing and floating in the vast ocean, our minds turn, yet we have no control over the direction of the tide. My daughter's voice pulls me back to the little bed in her quiet room. Daddy, what does it feel like to die? I draw her close and hold tightly. My sweet, sweet child, I'm still trying to figure out what it feels like to live. And they're so interconnected, aren't they? <laughs> For yes, me, anyway. Yeah, that, that consciousness of death and, and how that infuses life in a different way. I, I find um, my my youngest child was about two and a half when uh, my wife died. She's 22 now, just graduated from college. And um, I've, I actually found the conversations we had with her refreshing in a certain way. That's an odd word, but they were so straightforward. And, and I found she was quite able to understand what was happening. It wasn't true what I was being told that children can't understand death and they don't really get what's happening. She seemed to get it kind of better than a lot of adults I was encountering. Um, and I hear that in your daughter as well, just sort of straightforward questions and, and trying to grapple with the meaning of it all. Yeah, and you know what's amazing about kids is they're not as afraid as we are. Mm-hmm. And they're not afraid of not understanding. I mean, w- one thing about this piece is at some point we adults don't have all the answers either. Um, kids aren't as scared of that. They're used to not having the answers. Um, <laughs> and so they don't have all that emotional baggage with them when they go to discuss these things. But as you get older and you find out that maybe these aren't things we talk about or you find out that they're heartbreaking and scary, we develop all that baggage. And, and sometimes we're just not as adept at talking about the basics. The other part, too, is sometimes certain certain answers that are complex for adults 
are simply accepted. You know, we when we were trying to, uh, when my wife was getting close to dying, and we knew that was coming, and that this the little one, the older ones got it more, but the little one, we weren't sure if she'd understand. And we got out a stethoscope, and we listened to all our hearts, and explained the physical reality of death. And it was sort of like once we finished that, she said, oh, okay, you know, went back to playing. It, that was acceptable. So that's another aspect of it that um, our inadequate answers to us sometimes are more adequate. I don't yeah, know if I, that... I, I think kids also, too, to them, in the beginning especially, it's about the mechanics. Um, so they're very interested in mechanically what happens and what does it mean. I think the deeper emotional meanings come with time. And and all of us have to find our, our own at some level, too, uh, ultimately, uh, those deeper meanings. Yeah, definitely. Um. I think I'm I'm circling back around as we get near near the end to the idea that you as a very very young child uh were yourself exposed to death very intimately and I don't know if you still remember whether you were grappling with those questions or just kind of living day to day with the reality um but it also sounds as if that, you know, many of my clients who lost parents young, it was it was very unacknowledged. Uh, nobody was supposed to talk to it, talk about it. But it sounds as if you had some opportunity to to um, acknowledge that loss in in your family. I did, um, and lucky, you know, we are an emotional family, and we did talk about things, and I think I was lucky because I was the youngest, so I think my siblings, who were both older than me, didn't have as many open conversations, because at their age, they were two and four years older than me, Um, they had already had some of that guardedness that I didn't have, so my mom tells me that, and I don't remember this, but she said that I was kind of the first one to say, okay, so what happens if you die? Mm. Uh, So I I think I went through this process of, of... trying to understand the basics. And I think, so I was around seven, and I took some time, I got the basics, and then I kind of put it aside until I was much older. And then I think when, you know, I entered college is when I really started emotionally thinking about what that meant to me. Um, But I think as a seven-year-old, I needed to understand the basics. Am I safe? How is my life going to now look? Um, What's going to happen to me? Um, Once I got those questions answered, it gave me peace. At that point, I think I dealt with things more as I got older, more the emotional side, and who am I, and what does this mean to me as a person? And how did it impact you going forward? Uh, You know, I wonder that a lot because, of course, my kids are grown up, they're all grown up, and they are who they are, and I really have would have no way of knowing what the factors are. I I mean, one of my daughters, the oldest daughter is quite afraid of germs, Um, from a from another death, not, not the death of my wife. But other than that, there's no direct link between who they are and those experiences. But I know it's in there. Yeah, yeah. and you know one of the one of the things I reflect, and sometimes when I meet people who have lost um, spouses and have young children, 
you know, one of the things I think is important is I say, you know, look at me. I, I grew up with what some people would call one of the most horrible things that could happen to you as a child, and yet I have all these things to look forward to. I have all these things that make me happy. I have my own family and children and a job and writing, and, and I still can look at this as kind of a magical world and a magical life, and, and despite that, and, and maybe partially because of it. Mm, so Maybe. You know I think we can never really see the impact of, of such dramatic things when, when children are little, but I also think that we have this amazing ability to heal and, and move on and, and to build. Um, such a bit, that's what such, we do. Is such a beautiful place for us to end today. I want to thank you so much. I hope people will really go find your blog in particular because it's, it's just so uh, wonderful to read. So thanks for being here. Oh, uh, Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. You bet. Next week, I'll be talking with Isabel Stenzel Burns. Her book, The Power of, Tur- of Two, and a documentary of the same name, are about her and her twin sister Ava's experiences with cystic fibrosis, with three lung transplants between them, and a lifetime of advocacy for organ donation and grief work. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.